Good morning. morning. Video had more time left than I thought. (laughs) Uh, Good to see everybody today. This is the time when our our kiddos are going to head out to Children's Church, so they'll head out to the other building if they haven't already. And we've got uh, a nursery, staff nursery over there as well, and uh, a cry room in the back if you need any of those options today. Uh, We do have, we've got several events and, and just things, calendar things coming up in the next week or so. So if you'll give me a couple minutes, I just want to touch on some of those. We also do have lots of people on our prayer list. We've got several who have been sick or had surgery or uh, different things like that. And then this morning, Katie Ann's late this morning. She hit a deer on her way in this morning. So she's, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I didn't get that far. So <laughs> but Katie Ann's okay and she's on her way. But um, uh, that's all the details I have on that. Uh, so lots of people uh, to keep keeping our prayers and um, all those things. So there's a prayer list back there that you can grab. We also have this afternoon, our class time today, we're going to have a teacher meeting uh, during our class time. Part of what we want to do there is, is go over some information with our teachers. If you're a teacher or children's church leader, uh, anything like that with our, with our kids, with our children's ministry especially, uh, we're going to go over some stuff, but we also want to have time to just get everybody together for conversation and feedback and questions and, and things like that, kind of some time to have conversation together. So we'll do that during class. Uh, Terry is also going to lead kind of another discussion-based uh, adult class if, if that meeting doesn't apply to you. Uh, but even if you just want to hear about children's ministry or, or what, we, what we're doing there, you're welcome to come um, in there with us. We'll be in the fellowship hall, and I guess, Terry, you'll be in the room in the back. Uh, so that's for our adults um, for class today. Uh, And then for our Wednesday night class, we've been going through the Enneagram series, and one change to announce for that, uh, to the schedule, this Wednesday, we're we're switching the numbers we're doing, and we're doing sixes this Wednesday, right? Uh, So that's a a slight shift in kind of the order, so sixes will be this Wednesday night, Um, so just kind of keep that in mind, and I won't call any of our sixes out in public, but um, remember that, that that's, (laughs) that's on Wednesday. Uh, And then the next day is our fall festival on Halloween night. Um, Carrie and and others have been doing a lot of work to get ready for this. There's a lot of good stuff going on and and happening. We think it's going to be a fun and exciting uh, event, so there's still space to be a part of that. We had several that have signed up, but there's a a sign-up sheet in the fellowship hall that kind of has some of the um, needs and and roles. If you want to put your name on a specific spot, if you don't have a spot yet, where is that at over there? On the table when you walk into the fellowship hall. So that's over there. And um, I think right now it calls, it, there's a, a chance of rain on Thursday, but uh, we've got a plan that we can do it inside or outside. So we're ready to go rain or shine. So that's coming up. Uh, and then next Sunday, we'll start a new sermon series called Overflow, uh, where we're going to be talking about gratitude and, and pursuing uh, a life of gratitude kind of as we uh, lead up to uh, a time in our culture where we're kind of thinking about that in, in the month of November and looking toward Thanksgiving and, and things like that. So lots and lots of good stuff coming up in the next week. We hope you'll, you'll plug in uh, somewhere along there and, and find places to, to be involved and, and, and be connected. Um, but today we're wrapping up uh, this, this look at, at, at kind of a few stories in First Samuel. And perhaps some of you uh, have had a similar experience to me or like me in that you, you got married and, and then found out that you had been doing something wrong your entire life. Um, 
for me, one of those things was folding towels. I found out I'd been folding towels wrong my entire life upon getting married, <laughs> that apparently there's a right way to fold them and a wrong way to fold them, and, and I'd been doing it the wrong way. Um, and I did ask Ashley if I could tell this, and she said, yes, as long as it's obvious that you're doing it jokingly. So this is all said in jest. <laughs> um, of course, naturally. Um, but, but sometimes we have that idea, right, that, that the way that I do things is right and the way that you do them is wrong. Uh, and the problem is the opposite of that is also true, right? The way that you do things is right and the way I do things is wrong, which can present some, some problems. Uh, and so towels represent a, a lighthearted, a joking, uh, emphasis on joking, <laughs> Emph- uh, the, they represent a lighthearted, exaggerated version of that, right? Uh, but unfortunately, that principle cuts deeper and often rings more true when it comes to some weightier matters. That there are some things that matter to us, and, and if you do it differently than me, then, then perhaps we've, we've got a problem. Uh, so we're wrapping up, as I said, our look at 1 Samuel today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 30, if you want to turn there. And I think we see this sentiment uh, play out in, in this story in, in 1 Samuel 30. And so there's, there's a lot of background we could do to lead up to how uh, this, this story begins and how we end up with David and his men coming back home. But it would, it would take a lot of time for us to do this morning, so you can do that later if you want to do that on your own. It's an interesting kind of background of how that happens, um, but we're not going to get into that this morning. I do want to say, though, because we've been looking at Saul for the last couple of weeks, and so um, after kind of really thinking a lot about him for the last couple of weeks, I've, I felt like, uh, this is my own fault, but he's not going to get a great send-off in our series um, today is, is really, uh, David takes center stage for us today where Saul has the last couple of weeks. But man, again, if you keep reading uh, after this to the last chapter of this book and the first chapter of Second Samuel, Saul just continues to be, for me, this just tragic character. Um, and, and even going through this, this series and reading through this book again this time, I've really come to see Saul not so much as this kind of evil guy, but just someone who is, is just a tragic character character. And I said in class a couple of weeks ago that I, I used the example of, I heard about a guy who won the lottery and then said winning the lottery was the worst thing that ever happened to him. And I, I said in there, and I, and I really feel it about Saul, that I think Saul at the end of his life probably looks back and thinks, man, becoming king was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, it just seems to unravel him. Um, and he's, he's tormented by his, his inner demons and, and just darkness and darkness of spirits and things that are kind of at war within him, um, depressed, I think, is, is, is a word that keeps coming to mind for me, and all of that kind of just continues to play out when he tries to kill himself in the next chapter and, and just continues this kind of downward spiral. Um, but today is about David and David's men. So 1 Samuel 30 is where we're going to pick up. You'll see here it says, David and his men reached Ziklag, which is where they've been staying, on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters 
taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. All right, we're going to pause there for just a minute and pick back up in a second. Um, But if you're looking for the kind of, we've been looking at stories in this series that have to do with spirits or ghosts. And so the spirit tie-in is kind of the inner spirit of David's men, and in an indirect way, David himself in this story, that there are a few references kind of to the spirit of, of the men in this story, as you see there, that the men are, are bitter in spirit. And I think it's a fitting end to this series and in our kind of brief look at this book, because I think that, that's kind of the overall theme to me of this book, is, is what spirit do you allow to be at work in your life? Um, and, and there's this, this kind of ongoing narrative of the spirit of the people uh, in this book and, and the spirit of God and how sometimes the spirit of God is at work in the people in the book, and sometimes it's a spirit of darkness or a worldly spirit or something else. Uh, And so here we see that these men are bitter in spirit as they come back home and find their town still smoldering in ashes. And you can imagine the pain and grief and and anger and bitterness and everything else that you would be feeling in this moment, right? Uh, Here these men have been traveling all over with David. They've been hiding in caves. They've been conquering other people and villages and towns. And, and now they come back home and, and they find their, turn, their, their town in, in ashes. Their families are gone. They've been taken captive, but, but they don't know for sure what has happened to them. They may be dead for all they know. Uh, they may have been sold off into some type of, of slavery or a life of, of misery. Who knows what's happened to them? And, and they just weep until they have no strength left to weep. But then they, they turn on David and they say, hey, you, you brought us into this mess. Uh, you can hear some of their, their kind of complaints probably, right? You, you got us into this and now we've, we've sacrificed everything because we told you to kill Saul when you had the chance twice and you didn't do it. And now here we are and our families are gone. Everything we have is gone. So they try to stone him. They're bitter in spirit. But David found strength in the Lord his God. We'll come back to that point later, but now we'll continue on. We're going to skip down to verse 9, uh, because basically then they, they've kind of regained some of their strength, and so they decide, all right, we're going to go, we're going to try to find out who did this and get our people and our stuff back. And so that's what happens. Uh, David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley, where, the, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. So remember, you've already got these guys who have just wept until they couldn't weep anymore. They have no strength left. But they decide, nope, all right, we're feeling good enough. We're going to go try to get them. And so I imagine they come to this valley, maybe after a very difficult stretch of, of, of kind of trekking through this, this region. Maybe they've just gone through some difficult stuff or, or they've got a difficult kind of climb ahead of them, and two, uh, 200 of them just say, all right, guys, we got to stop. Like, we're done. We have, we have nothing left. And, and I picture this as, as men who are just physically 
emotionally and spiritually drained. And they just physically can't keep going anymore. Uh, some of us probably know what that's like, to feel like we've, we've reached a point and, and we're just done. I've, I've got nothing left to give. I'm, I'm out of, of anything left to offer. And this is where I'm just going to have to sit and stay for a while. Um, maybe literally or maybe metaphorically or maybe both. Uh, but that's what happens. And so 200 of them stay. The other 400 keep going. They end up finding uh, that the people who took all their families and their stuff, if you look in verse 16, it says they find them scattered on the countryside, eating, drinking, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken. Then David and the other people recover everything. Uh, nothing was missing. He says in verse 19, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. So they get everything back. Now they're headed back to meet these other guys who they left in the valley. Everything seems to be good. They're kind of celebrating as they go along. And so verse 21 says, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers, some versions there say the mean-spirited men. So again, we have this idea of the spirit that's at work within them. The mean-spirited men, the troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However... Each man may take his wife and children and go. Uh, okay, so again, we're going to stop real quick because I think, if nothing else, this is just like a crash course in, in good and bad ways to approach people who, who are in a valley. Uh, this is like how to, how to approach people who are just drained 101, I think. David comes back. They got all this celebration going on, right? But before getting into any of that, it says the first thing David does is ask them how they're doing. His, his first concern is for them. How are you doing? He's going to check in on how they're doing. But then the other guys with David come back and they say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's get one thing straight before we get into anything else. Let's make sure we understand these guys don't get any of the plunder. <laughs> they didn't come with us. They didn't risk their lives. They didn't have the strength to keep going. They, we'll, we'll be nice and let them have their wife and kids back. But we get to keep all the stuff. Um, not a great response. So David replies, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? I love that line. Like, who's even going to listen to you? Do, do you hear what you're saying? Do you hear what that sounds like? No one's going to listen to that. Who will even listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. And so I think in this story, uh, there's a lot of interesting ways we could go with it. But one of the things that, that, that really stood out to me is you've got these, these mean-spirited men 
who come back and they basically say about these 200 that stayed behind in the valley, they say they don't deserve to have all the stuff that we got. We're the ones that went and fought. We, we risked everything that we had. Uh, you know, we were the ones in the battle. And so it just makes sense that we should be the ones who, keep, who get to keep all of that stuff. Um, that just seems to, to make sense, at least to those guys who went and fought. But I also think that in that, they begin to sound like people who tend to export their expectations of, of their own ways of, of grieving and handling a situation and respond to a, responding to a situation onto others. Uh, that there is this temptation within us as people to, to think that the way that I handle a situation, the way that I grieve, should be the way that others do as well. And we have this expectation that, that you should have responded the same way that I did. And what we have here, I think, is this, this kind of army of David divided into these two groups. One of whom just gets to a point in, the, in their grief and exhaustion where they say, I can't keep going anymore. And one who keeps going and goes into battle. One is just drained by their, their grief and their heartache and their pain and their exhaustion. And one is fueled by it and, and is just kind of uh, spurred on and, and keeps going. Uh, but both are grieving. And both are in this state of trying to process and, and make sense of all of what has happened to them. And so I think there are some points about grief in this story. Uh, not so much about how we grieve well, but more about how we respond to the grief of others and some, some clear ways, I think, of how not to respond or things not to say to people who are going through grief. Because perhaps it is that, that these men come back and, and they're simply looking at these men left in the valley saying, uh, you know what, they didn't go and fight with us, they shouldn't get any of the rewards. That would be a, a pretty typical human nature thing to do, I think. They, they weren't a part of the fight, so they shouldn't get any of the spoils. Uh, and perhaps it's just that, that that's the end of it. But with everything going on in the context of this story, uh, I think there is perhaps another layer to it. And I think that other layer, that, that it's, it's not hard for me to imagine that part of what these guys are struggling with is this idea that these men who stayed behind didn't handle things the way that I did. They didn't respond the way that I think we should have. They gave up. They quit. We, we were going together. We were going to get our stuff back, our people back, and these guys stopped. They're not getting any of the stuff that we got. I handled it the right way. They didn't. So we're going to keep the stuff. And I think that sentiment reverberates in our ears to this day when, when a grieving person is told something like they need to move on or they need to get over it. Uh, or enough time has passed and you just need to do this. Why don't you just try this? If we're honest, uh, I think we find that there are few things that make us as uncomfortable as someone else's grief. Uh, this is something that, I think it's something that, that, that I sort of felt, uh, but I never really kind of gave words to that until listening to some other people's thoughts and, and, and uh, insights this week. Uh, so this week, I, I reached out to some of our counselor uh, people here, Jason and, and Marcia and Bill, and kind of got some of their 
input. I, I thought back to, you know, we did a, a, a Wednesday night on grief and loss a while back, and so I thought back to some of the comments that, that the ladies who were up here with us that night shared. Um, I, I got some input from my dad, who works in, in grief care at, at Scott and & White. Um, and, and so partly because, like, I think for me, uh, grief is something that I can talk about almost like in the third person, it seems like for me. Um, I've lost grandparents um, but I was younger, that they had been sick for a while, they were older, they weren't ever a part of like my daily life. Um, I've never lost someone in my life who was with me on a, a daily basis, w- was, was there with me all the time. I've never lost a parent, a sibling, um, uh, a spouse, a kid, anything like that. Uh, and so I, I feel like I can imagine how I would respond in those situations, or I feel like I can imagine what that would do to me, but I, I, I recognize that, that anything I would try to imagine would be woefully short of actually experiencing it. Uh, and so one of the uh, stories that I listened to this week brought up this idea that, that people are just uncomfortable with the grief of others. And I thought, yeah, I think that's true. Um, because we, if we're honest, uh, we, we don't know what to do with the grief of other people. It scares us a little bit. We don't know what to say. We don't know what not to say. Um, it just it kind of makes us uncomfortable. Uh, it makes us feel really awkward when other people cry, uh, when other people really show a wide range of emotions. And I think you can see this because if, if someone cries in, in a group of people, what do they almost immediately do? They apologize. They say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I don't know why this is happening. I'm just sorry. Because we, we feel that need because we recognize I'm making those around me uncomfortable. Uh, we're uncomfortable around other people's grief. Uh, we're uncomfortable, really, in our culture with death in general. We don't like to say things like someone died. We like to say things like they passed on. Uh, we, don't, we, we like to say things that we think sound comforting to other people, like God needed another angel, um, which really probably isn't that comforting in a lot of situations. And just to be real, real honest, it's just kind of bad theology, <laughs> about what happens to us and about angels, but we think it, it sounds comforting, so we say things like that, because um, we, we, we really just don't know what to do. We're even uncomfortable using language of, of mourning and grief, and we have gotten away f- in our culture from language like funeral, um, and language like celebration of life is much more popular, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with celebrating the life of someone who dies, um, but, but it, it's not healthy for us if we short-circuit grief and mourning as part of that process. We're just uncomfortable with some of that. And so we just feel like a lot of times, I think, that, that things sure would be easier for us if, if that other person who is in grief and mourning would just move on, would get over it. Um, then we could just go back to life as normal. If only everyone else would handle things the way that I think they should. Uh, But what we find is that pain, sorrow, grief, tears, sadness, and a whole range of other emotions are a part of life. They are not signs of weakness or inadequate faith. And we are repeatedly told in Scripture that hardship is a part of life. And Jesus says things like, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We are told to mourn with those who mourn, and we see a host of people throughout Scripture, including Jesus himself, on multiple occasions, grieving and weeping and mourning. 
And so if that's true, then, then what does that look like? What does it look like to truly kind of embrace mourning and mourning with those who mourn and, and not trying to export our expectations of grief onto other people, but, but sitting with them in grief? Uh, and we're not going to get too far into that this morning, but along those lines, I do love David's response to both the men who stayed and the men who kept going. Again, he says to the men who stayed when he comes back to him, how are you doing? He just checks in with them, first and foremost. He, he, he is concerned about their well-being and their mental state. Uh, but then to the guys, uh, who the, the mean-spirited men who say, hey, we're going to keep all the rest of the stuff, he says, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. Uh, everyone gets the same. And then he says, those who went down to the battle and those who stayed with the supplies. And which I think is a really interesting way to phrase that. And I love the way he phrases that because earlier in the story when we're told that they stayed, all we're told is they stayed in the valley. And now when David is making this case that they're going to get equal, he says, everyone gets equal, those who went to the battle and those who stayed with the supplies. That's how he describes them. Uh, he doesn't say those who gave up. He doesn't say those who quit. It's not those who didn't do things the right way. It's not those who didn't love their families enough to keep going in pursuit of their captives. Not those who were unable to move on. Those who stayed with the supplies. That even in this moment, David recognizes that their contributions mattered that they are a valued, needed, and included part of the community. In a time of crisis, David holds the community together by validating those who fought and those who stayed with the supplies. He doesn't differentiate between the two. Grief takes on different forms and is incredibly personal for each individual. And the fact that two people might navigate their grief differently doesn't put one above the other. There will be many things that, that make us different as believers. We grieve differently. We react to things differently. We're spiritually formed at, at different rates and by different means. Uh, some ebb while others flow. We celebrate differently. Uh, we mourn differently. We navigate life differently. But we're called to draw our strength from the same source. And that, I think, is the encouragement that we find in this story from David. Early on in the story, again, when, when his life is just in tatters, uh, everything has just been going terribly for David. Now his family's gone, his town's gone, and his army wants to stone him. It says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. In all of the chaos surrounding him, David turns to God for strength. And in doing so, he's able to handle all that's going on around him with clarity with strength, with wisdom, with vision, with, with faith in God, because he never loses sight of his God. For David, there is this close personal connection between him and God. God isn't just Israel's God. God isn't just Samuel's God or Saul's God. God is his God. And this is how he has always been able to handle adversity. You may, be, you may remember when we, we skipped the famous story of, of David going up against Goliath in this series. I've preached about it before, but, but in that story, when David goes to fight Goliath, uh, he tells Saul, who tries to talk him out of it, like, look, you're just a kid. This guy's going to destroy you. Uh, but David tells him, he says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. 
This has always been David's attitude. When he comes up against adversity, he draws his strength from God. And so if you are mourning today and have felt pressure for your grief to look different in some way, then I encourage you to release yourself from the expectations of others and draw your strength from a God who meets you in your grief and desires to hold you up through it. And for those of us who know someone who needs some time to sit and wait in the valley, may we remember to come back not as the mean-spirited men and put our expectations on others, but to come back as David did and ask, how are you doing? But I think we also find that our putting expectations on others is not simply confined to something like grief. Uh, We might question the career path of someone else. We might tell someone that they need to hurry up and get married or or hurry up and have kids. Uh, We might have differences or questions about how we worship, right, or what we can do in worship. Uh, I was thinking even this morning as we were worshiping together, I'm, I'm still not someone who really is comfortable. It's, it's not in me to kind of raise my hands in worship. That's not the way that, that I kind of connect in worship. But I'm so glad that in our community we have the freedom for those of us who want to just sit with our hands in our pockets to do that, and for those that want to raise their hands and clap and get into it to do that as well. I think it's beautiful uh, when, when others uh, in our community feel the freedom to do that and don't feel the expectations of others weighing you down and kind of uh, inhibiting your worship and expression in worship. So, so keep doing it. May we, may we be people who, who recognize the, the beauty and the benefit of that in so many different areas of life. So if you're struggling uh, today because you feel someone's d- expectations in any number of ways, I, I think we do this in spiritual growth as well, right? That sometimes we may look around at, at others around us and think, man, this person seems to, be, seems to be kind of growing and maturing faster than I am, and I'm, I'm still hung up on this same stuff. I've got these same temptations and questions. I just can't seem to kick these things. Wh- whatever it may be, um, I, I, I encourage you to, to realize that for, for none of us is spiritual maturity a straight line. Um, for none of us uh, do, do we handle things in exactly the same way. And regardless of the situation, some of us might find times where we just simply need to sit down in the valley and take a break. And for others of us, we might be in a season where we're ready to head forward uh, and just head into the next battle with all the energy in the world. And, and we hold those things. David reminds us that those two groups can, can be held together in community in the strength of the Lord. Uh, and so each Sunday, we come around the table in communion to remember Christ. And today, I want to invite us specifically to remember two things as we prepare to share in communion. Uh, One is that as we take these emblems of Jesus's body and blood that were given for us, may we do so with thanksgiving that his strength is our strength, that the power that was at work in the resurrection is the same power that is at work within us. And so as we come here week after week and share in this communion meal, we draw water from the well of everlasting life and are replenished and lifted up. And second, uh, the second thing I want us to remember today is that we come together around the table as equal recipients of the blessing of Jesus Christ. Some of us may have spent this week in the valley exhausted and unable to move forward anymore. 
Uh, some of us may have spent the week in battle with all the energy of an entire army. Some of us may have lost battles this week, and some of us may have won battles. Some of us are in places of doubt in our faith, and some of us are on unshakable ground. We grieve differently, we struggle differently, we mature differently, but we draw our strength from the same source of life, and we come together before the throne crying out, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so may we be strengthened today as we continue in song and remember Jesus in our time of communion today. So let's stand and sing together, and then we'll share um, in our time around the table this morning.
going to pray our prayer of confession and then share in communion uh, this morning. I'll pray the parts in white, and together we'll pray the parts in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to the world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 